there. Welcome. And thanks for listening along with Kingstown Communion, an inclusive and affirming United Methodist Church in the Kingstown area of Alexandria, Virginia. And our community exists to gather people, just like you here now, into communion with Christ and extend God's table into the world through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. This podcast is just one way that we live this out. For more information about our church or to give to our ministry, visit kingstowncommunion.net. And if you live nearby, we hope you'll join us for worship on Sundays at Hayfield Secondary School. accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, They will be blessed in what they do. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. Um, So a a joke that runs in uh, many of my circles is, how do you know somebody went to Duke? I'll tell you. Uh (laughs) That's right. Um, And uh, like somebody posted on Facebook, like some meme about like, what are like the thing that your pastor always says or something that they always do? And I loved how somebody put, commented, um, mine always talks about Duke. Um, so, or always mentions that she went to Duke. Uh, and so I just warning you, I'm gonna do that a little bit today. So I just wanna, um, but I, I do wanna, uh, y'all are whispering about me now, I can tell. Uh, oh, that's right, that's right, no. Um, so I, um, I went to Duke, yes, and they trained me very well. Trained me very well. Um, I loved it. I was mesmerized by Duke, completely enamored by it. Um, by, it was just a whole new world for me. But um, I learned about two months in that the place was on like another level that was just not me. And I, I say this because there are some that are on that level. And I will tell you, one of them is, is, is David Ariola in our congregation. Like, he was on that level. You could tell in the classroom he was on that level. I was not on that level. And, and what I mean by that is, like, I was mesmerized by it, and, like, it completely changed my life, and it made me who I am today, but I it made me the preacher and the theologian I am and all that. It's wonderful, wonderful. I don't, like, but... Um, 
it's a strange place that is any place that's a major research university. Anybody else go to a major research university? Yeah. I'm, tell me how different your day and conversations are now compared to when you were at that university. I see her like nodding her head. Yeah. Um, the way the like modern research university works is that in order to be, we think it's about higher education, but no, in order to be even trusted with higher education, you have to first show up and prove yourself and, and do the research. And so in any given year, at a, like this is Duke for instance, lots of places are like this, out of 13,000 students at Duke, around 2,000 are members of the graduate school, and that's capital G graduate school, not every one of them, and their, their job is full-time research. And then of the nearly like 3,000 faculty at Duke or a place like Duke, nearly 2,000 of them are tenured or tenure-track professors who in addition to being teachers and teaching you in the classroom are expected and committed to this like full life of research. And so that's like 4,000 people at Duke alone for whom research alone is like the current and constant focus of their life's work. That's what they get up to do every day. And what makes Duke, I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes it incredible that that's, that that's the case. It's why everybody, you know, knows of Duke. It's a, there's so many research professionals and they're devoting their lives to full-time research and these folks are like a big deal at these places. The most prestigious people on campus because in a place that prizes knowledge, they surely have the most of it, right? But they're, they're also almost always the most isolated people on campus, those 4,000. Because once they explain the precise nature of their particular field of study, no one ever has the courage, or maybe even the desire, um, or the time to hold a conversation with them anymore. And they, they could make so much more money doing just about it, anything remotely close somewhere else, but they keep showing up day after day after day. This is what makes it so strange to be at a place like that. They show up to do the research on a particular topic that has some kind of hold of their heart and their sense of calling and they're devoted to it. And so I was mesmerized by this culture at Duke but it's really not me. I like, I'm, I'm practical. Um, I, in some places, teach a practical theology, not Duke. It's called a systematic theology. I'm a practical person. I'm pragmatic. Um, and don't get me wrong, like I have like a spiritual gift also for, for having a, like abounding hope and optimism that can make me seem a little bit like I'm a dreamer. 
but I grew up living out of this assumption, and maybe you did too, that life is short, and the problems of the world are so many. And, and so Jesus comes to set things right, but they kill him, and so now it's our job to get as much of that job done before like some great cosmic buzzer goes off. Life is, life is short. And when you grow up formed in that way, the world of research just feels like, like, like stopping beside the highway to like open a paper map and read it. it. Like it was only ever a value to the extent that it could help you get more efficiently to where you're going, but this place you already know where you're going. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it feels, you know, it feels absurd sometimes. Finding a cure for cancer or slowing the clock of climate change, like those are obviously like worthwhile because it improved work that is already at hand. It's right there before us, but, but like uncovering, un and devoting your whole life to uncovering previously undervalued poets from an earlier century or discovering migration patterns in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's just like, I just didn't grow up. I don't know if you did. I didn't grow up valuing that kind of research. Basically, I was formed to think it to be a waste of time when there's so much work to do in this world, putting things right before the clock runs out, right? Um, and so with this kind of pragmatism and in a culture like Duke, I just always found myself really understanding what James has to say about the difference between just talking and hearing and reading and actually showing up to do the work on the ground. Did you hear it this morning? Let's look at it again on the screen. Um, so James um, says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And I can't help but in my pragmatism to think that James was talking to people in places like Duke <laughs> or talking to people who live and work in areas like the DC Metro even. Those of us who are pretty good at listening to all the words and reading all the words and digesting and pontificating all the words when actually showing up and doing the word is a whole different thing. I feel like maybe James is writing to us too. And I never really lost that kind of pragmatism, I, but I have... I have to question it a little bit too. To question the theological assumption behind that practical, do the word before time runs out kind of theology. So like, let's get philosophical for a second. You're welcome, Zach. Um, what if time, what if time is not in short supply? What if? What if Jesus really 
did save the world in a way it really needed saving. That is by reconciling us to God and giving us every opportunity we could desire to be reconciled to one another. What if our role isn't to save the world, but to enjoy and share in the way God has already and continues to save the world? I mean, that way of thinking, if we dare to assume it, changes the way we show up, or it should. It changes the way we see and work with and for God. Instead of us showing up as kind of frustrated and exasperated staff, part of God's staff doing this work, who are constantly complaining that the head office hasn't given us all the tools and the time to do the job that we have to do in the world. Instead, we become maybe actually worship, worshipers who show up to just, like a researcher, marvel at the wondrous and dazzling and hidden ways of this world and of God. It changes the way we think about it. And that change of attitude opens our hearts in a, to a new way of research, too. Because from such a perspective, research becomes then a form of love. Maybe we get them, give them some credit. They're loving really hard. Instant love is you know, largely about projection and about assuming the, the object of your love can be a ready vehicle for your own imagination and desire, but like sustained love, long-haul love, committed to something day in and day out kind of love is this true appreciation for the detail and complexity and difference and mystery of the other or the, the, the mis mysterious in, in which to know more is to wonder more. It, certainly at times to be baffled and confused and bewildered and impatient with the world, but over time to find through observation and analysis and appreciation that goes beyond respect even to love. So like when you look down a, microsco a microscope day after day after day and, and you see how your samples are doing under the microscope and you're rigorously recording every minute of it and when you pour over an ancient manuscript, I was, a, I was like an assistant to a, a professor one time that, and I did this and you, and you tried to establish if a later hand had added a gloss or altered a, vow, a vowel in this text, or when you interview a, a hundred people in a West African village to gauge like their notion of the spirit that they may receive in, in their water ceremony. Like, through all of that, you are immersing yourself in the wonder of the world God has made. Whole new way to look at it. And the, and the word we use for immersing ourselves in wonder is worship. It's this whole other way of showing up. Research is, it can be this form of worship maybe, the moment it recognizes that God is revealed as much in the precise minutia of nature and culture as in the broad horizon of history or or, you know, a glorious sunset. 
Extensive research teaches us knowledge and mercy and discipline and patience and understanding and compassion and respect for other people and, and wonder at the creator. And above all, or beyond all of this, most of all, if, if we only let it, research gives us an insight into the way God loves us, maybe. He rewards us not just with instant love. He makes us not just the object of, of God's projections or pre-existing desires. God loves us as we really are and longs to know us in our own infinite and intricate complexity. And sure, God is also exasperated and mystified by us sometimes. But all the more, God pours over us and studies us and adores us in, in our fearful and, and wondrous uniqueness and terrible rebelliousness sometimes, right? So I want us to do a little bit of like that kind of showing up today. Let's give them some credit. Um, so let's do like a theological task by taking, let's, let's do some, let's do a little bit of research. Let's take this to its, to its end, this question on the screen. It's a question I get asked all the time. It's a major question in the church, um, major question of theology. If God is good, how can there be so much suffering in the world? It's a good question, right? It's actually called the question of theodicy. Well, if you were starting from that position, if you had a high regard for scripture as definitive revelation, you'd look at the varieties of ways this question is handled in the Old Testament and the New Testament and find that the question is seldom asked in quite the same way in the Bible. And then you'd look at social contexts in which the question has arisen and, and perhaps explore whether it is most likely to arise among persons who are wealthy or persons who are impoverished. Who asks it more? Or among, among stable societies or people on the move or at war. You'd look at the way the question has arisen and been addressed across the, the different Christian traditions. How do different denominations address this question? And with other faiths, how do other faiths address this question? You might look into philosophical questions of the origin and development of the notion of goodness, perhaps. And the difference, maybe, between suffering and evil. Are they the same thing? Are they different? You might look into social science data of objective and, and subjective estimates of suffering and psychological estimates of the balance of physical and mental distress in life. And you might even look at data on, on whether prayer affects or reduces the symptoms or degree of suffering and whether people of faith report being more or less troubled by pain and distress than people of no faith. And, and how many people who grew up studying because they're so concerned to make the world a better place actually succeed in, in making 
the world truly good. And before you know it, you'll be dreaming of some kind of multidisciplinary institute <laughs> with annual endowed lectures and scholars in residence and new academic journals and, and this whole infrastructure of research life at the very least, you'd certainly do some kind of historical survey of when these questions have been most acute. And I imagine you'd end up somewhere around the late 17th century because it was around that time with the birth of modern science and the notion that there could be forms of knowledge that could contradict the world described in scripture that people started to think of God as fundamentally aloof and far away and, and began to lose the assumption that God is, is more deeply and intimately wrapped up in every event and detail of our lives than we are. And somehow, somehow we forgot that the first thing we know about God is that in Jesus, he shared every dimension of our human life and and, and, and volatility and took on a degree of suffering few can ever comprehend. Instead, he, we assumed God was sitting. We assumed God was sitting behind some control screen, arbitrarily like dishing out joy and despair and random and vindictive amounts. So that's what a theological dissertation on on the good God in a, in a world of suffering could, might look like. And a few weeks of research, and you'd realize you could be writing 25 dissertations because the question is always so much more complex than it first appeared. And, and to this point, we discovered there may be a problem then. <laughs> We have created this huge industry that turns out dissertations and monographs and a, an industry whose machines are libraries and, and seminars and sabbaticals and, and, and preliminary exams and preceptorial internships and on and on. And it, this m machine is in part designed to separate the researcher from the distraction of having to earn a living while engaging in their studies, but also to create the safe zone of disciplinary objectivity to hide them away from the political and religious and economic and, and, and ideological and social pressures that might seek to predetermine the outcomes of their research, right? And yet in creating this safe zone, we are in danger of, of the idea that knowledge can be separated from its, its cultural sources and social consequences. And this is why the language, how far off is that language, right, Lily, from the language you live and speak now? The question of suffering, for example, can never be simply a, an, an academic question, right? It's because we know people who suffer we know what it's like to show up with people who suffer, to respond with compassion to those who suffer, or it's this elaborate attempt, often research is this elaborate attempt to ignore them. And, and the very idea that there could be an answer to the problem of suffering can quickly become this legitimizing 
for doing nothing at all to help your neighbor with their emphysema, right? It reminds, it reminds me, James and, and, and this, uh, this kind of this circle that I've always kind of been in of what do I think of Duke? What, how do I feel about it? Um, it reminds me of this cartoon that I once saw and I could not find it in its original um, form um, to even purchase it. So we have a, um, it has a little trademark on it. Um, but it, <laughs> take a second and just look at this. It depicts this like, um, the cl- you know, some wise people taking a gentle walk at what was, it is a, a psychiatrist convention. And out there, uh, there's a figure like floundering in deep water and making incoherent sounds, arms and legs struggling in the waves. Um, and, and then a caption, um, you know, it's probably just a cry for help. And there's something painfully true about this cartoon that like gets at this whole different this whole conversation of, of, of doing versus just hearing and talking. It's, it's not that research retrieves information that isn't intuitively obvious. That's by, like, it's not that case. It's as, as countless scientific discoveries and revisionist historical readings show, like, it's that research is all about, like it's supposed to lead the horse to water at some point, right? And there can be something wrapped in the disciplines of all of that objectivity and peer review and, and like all these conclusions and referencing that somehow disables the activity of research from the, from the task of getting horses to actually drink. The like, reason why this is so painful as well as funny is that we assume that psychiatrists all went off for like lunch. They're walking to their lunch and said to one another, how wise they've been, and meanwhile, no one did anything about the person drowning in the bay. And those of us who've sat in graduate seminars, like, we know how uncomfortable this feels because you know what this is like to sit there. I'm feeling like I know that it's been me who's been one of those psychiatrists at one time or another. Or us who live in DC Metro, I'm starting to feel a little bit like one of those psychiatrists. And at this point, we hear this thunderbolt from James today. It should change completely the way we hear this, living in the area in which we live. Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they look like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, of freedom, and continue in it, are persistent in it. One version says, endure in it, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act they will be blessed in their doing. Basically, James says, show up. Don't isolate yourself. 
show up? And how do we steer a path between like that kind of um, unreflective pragmatism over here of the culture that I grew up in and, and the, the industry of, of socially disembodied research that threatens to kind of overwhelm the life of the graduate school student or the professor or us in right at the edge of the most well-read zip code in America? The simple answer <laughs> is only by being a part of a community in which that community's regular rhythm of life is shaped by ordinary acts of humble service and, and conscious personal and corporate awareness of the greater context in which all of our strivings take place in this world. And that place, I mean the church, nowhere else does that like here. If, you, if your primary identity is to be a researcher or whatever you are in, the, in those kind of largely academic, highly professional settings, you're likely to be so overwhelmed by the anxiety of fulfilling your professional standards that it may be hard to imagine how to, to reconcile those responsibilities with the, the simple habits of prayer and regular encounter with those whom Jesus spent time with. If your primary identity is the rhythm of sacrament and service instead, if you're showing up to a place like this, the only place you receive sacrament and are sent out to serve, the daily walk of discipleship and the discovery of friendships only the gospel ever makes possible, then research can be set free. <laughs> Academia can be set free. Intellectualism can be set free. Sophistication can be set free to be a form of worship or a labor of love, or a discovery of the wonder of what God has made in this world. For the end of like research that ultimately matters in a place like this, right? What we show up to learn here, and what we're sent out to show up for, isn't the groundbreaking like cancer breakthroughs or the astonishing sighting of a new galaxy just to the left of the edge of the of our universe the research that ultimately matters here is the 33 years jesus spent patiently day in and day out committed to listening and learning what it could possibly take to redeem us that was the truly, like, the most painstaking research of all. And the question for us today is, do we accept his findings? And will we show up? Let's pray. God, we long for our lives, as rich as they may be, people who, you know, have been well-educated, <laughs> well-informed, 
maybe not born into this, but have kind of forgotten where, they've, where they were so many years ago because they've gotten so mesmerized by this world of, of, of research and sophistication, of scholarly articles and, and, and every book imaginable that we could read and digest. God, people like us, we long for our lives, for what we love, for the way we live, to be an act of worship before you. But it does take God us showing up in a new way. It does take us becoming mesmerized by new things. It does take us coming here, not living our faith from wherever we are, but coming to a space like this, the only place where we are formed by sacrament and sent out to serve. And so, God, thank you for inviting us to your table today. Something that is so, it's, it's this tangible act of not just hearing but doing. Make us doers of your word, God, people who show up. And, and bring to mind those people in our lives right now who are in desperate need of us showing up to them. Maybe there are people in this room right now who are in need of you, God, showing up for them or for us as the church to show up for them. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who, who painstakingly did the, the long-haul work to redeem us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.